Hello and welcome to the Ballot Box global election coverage from a team of political scientists. I'm Jonathan Parker in London. I'm Chris Terry in Manchester. I'm Andres Besser in New York City. Hey, um, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Ballot Box. So this week we are covering the Kenyan general elections, which were held on August the 9th, um, which elected the president, uh, the National Assembly, the Senate, uh, county governors and members of 47 county assemblies. So quite a lot up for election, um, although the main focus has obviously has been on the on the presidency um, in, in the coverage. Um, so the, this was won by William Ruto of the United Democratic Alliance. Um, it, after a very, very long vote, um, we defeated um, Raila Odinga um, by a very small margin um and also on quite a low turnout um this was a spell by kenyan standards at 67 percent um as we as we've just mentioned this took very long time to come through and also uh four out of seven of the commissioners of the independent electoral and boundaries commission um have also rejected the results and there's also been uh one of the also the losing candidate adinga has also questioned the credibility of the results as well um in the past, Kenya has seen outbreaks of um, a, a sort of violence after elections, particularly in the post-electoral crisis of 2007 to 8. Um, but this doesn't seem to have been the case, thankfully, um, this time uh, around. Um, so, yes, as listeners will know, none of us are uh, experts in sub-Saharan African politics at all. Um, so we are very fortunate today to be joined by a, a guest who will take us through this, um, a very knowledgeable guest, um, who I will let Andres introduce. Thank you, Johnny. So yes, we're lucky to, to, to have as a guest today, Dr. Frederick Ajong. Um, we're, we're lucky because Kenya is a really interesting country. It's a very important democracy. And he is definitely uh, a, an expert in the, in the politics of Kenya. Dr. Ajwang is a lecturer in political science at King's College London, where he focuses on African politics with key research themes uh, around land, property rights, and political violence in Kenya. With colleagues at King's, Trinity College Dublin, and Kenyatta University, he's completing a research project on voter behavior in Kenya, and the fieldwork coincided with with, with the just completed elections in Kenya. So he's been in the field in, the, in, in Kenya and, and has brought back um, very, very valuable insights. Dr. Ajwang was a postdoc at University College Dublin before going to King's College. And he also worked at the University of Sussex. He's been following Kenyan politics closely for many years now and has been following this recent election as well. We're, we're truly lucky and honored to have him on the show. Thanks so much for being here, Fred. Yeah, thank you very much. Great. So as as I was um, as I said briefly, Kenya um, is 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 maybe one of the most democratic countries in in Africa in sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. Um, it's and it's definitely a regional leader in East Africa and possibly in the whole continent. Um, and my impression of Kenya, from what I've read, is that it has uh, competitive elections. And offices are all, you know, the, the offices that are most powerful, with the exception of the judiciary, are contested through elections. There's a vibrant and free press and organized civil society, but there are deep and pervasive issues that lower the quality of democracy. Dr. Ajwang, how would you characterize Kenyan democracy um, and specifically Kenyan elections? In many ways, Kenya is a unique country in Africa because of several reasons. One, one of them is being a, an economic powerhouse in Eastern Africa and also in Africa in general. It's one of the sort of an economic powerhouse and also a diplomatic hub because it really does host a lot of the UN bodies. And for those reasons, then Kenyan elections tend to be really broadcasted and be of critical interest to so many players, regionally in Africa and also the global level. But anyway, yeah, so I will agree with Freedom House that ranking of Kenya being a partially free country you know, in comparison to other African states, Kenya, you know, has a very active free media, very strong civil society, a fairly independent judiciary, and elections tend to be very open and competitive. Now, then why is it partially free? It is partially free or a hybrid regime because it combines those democratic, good democratic traits like, you know, free and fair media, strong society, with also other autocratic traits, like particularly political repression by the, by the incumbent leaders on the issues that these leaders tend to perceive or predetermine in advance to be very sensitive. You know, for example, corruption cases, right? Land issues, uh, extrajudicial killings, 
you know, and the elections we tend to be relatively free to some extent, but sometimes also not highly credible that may pass the, uh, you know, if, uh, may pass the test of democracy. So Kenyan elections in a sense are the key areas that in a way has made the country not advance economically because elections are highly contested, very, very much, uh, uh, what do you put it, um, volatile because of the ethnic dynamic, dynamics that are involved, the corruption that is involved, the competition for state resources that are involved in the Kenyan election. So these things tend to form a, a powder cake that are very, very volatile and easily ignited during elections. The reasons why the elections are highly competitive is precisely because of the corruption problem in Kenya. You know, so the, the argument is that the, the Kenyan elections are sort of being categorized as the winner takes all form of elections, right? So when you win, you take control of the state and the security apparatus, right? So the, the, the competitors are competing to take control of the state and the security apparatus to enrich themselves, the, the tribe and ethnic group, their relatives and friends, and also to use those same resources and security apparatus to harass the opponents, right? So Mr. Ruto has won the presidency. He's going to take control of the state and the security. He's going to use those resources, possibly to enrich himself and his family and friends and colleagues and supporters, and also use the same, same resources, you know, again, to harass the opponent, Mr. Odinga and his supporters. And because of those reasons, Kenyan elections tend to be highly competitive and fought over in a very, in a fierce way. Right. So in a way, those dynamics has made Kenyan uh, democracy not to really progress towards being completely free because of the, the corruption problem, the ethnicity problem, those two dynamics have really held back the Kenyan democracy in a very massive way. Yeah. Uh, so in regard to the Kenyan elections, I think I'm saying they're highly competitive because of the two dynamics, corruption and ethnicity. Right. So. Corruption money fuels campaigns in Kenya. People steal, incumbent leaders steal money. They use it to fund their campaigns. They win elections. Then they have to steal to, you know, more or less from what they, they so you steal to win elections and then you steal to win the next election. And also to, to, to sort of, um, you know, replenish what you use for the other campaigns. You know, and two, because of, and because of that, that, that problem of, it's, it's a self-sustaining problem that self-reproducing, still money to fund campaigns and then win elections and then still to replenish and also still to win the next campaigns, next election. And also because of the ethnicity problem in Kenya where groups are being mobilized based on the ethnic groups and people tend to vote based on the ethnicity. And so those two problems, have been, uh, those two areas have been the major issues or stumbling blocks in Kenyan elections. That's a fa that's fascinating. Um, and I had actually I I I read about um, clientelism in Kenya and kind of vote mobilization being this operation where um, voters kind of expect they have a, a a relationship to candidates, which is a very kind of clientelistic one, right? They're they're yeah. expecting what will I get out of voting for you? Um, what, what sort of resources will you bring down um, from the state? Yeah, yeah, that's that's fascinating. I definitely want to hear more about the ethnic dynamics, but before we go into that, um, I would I would like to further kind of our conversation around the electoral system and about the winner take all. Yeah. Um, I know that Kenya has had uh, three constitutions, one in 63, one in 69, which is perceived as a sort of less democratic uh, yeah. constitution, and then one in 2010 yeah. that kind of restored uh, democracy to an extent in Kenya. What what would you say are the main features of the of the 2010 election when it comes to like um, the kind of the political setup of of the 2010 uh, constitution in Kenya, which is the which is the current one? Yeah, it's the current one. Yeah, thanks so much. I mean, um, as we've clearly elucidated, it's clear Kenya has had three constitutions: the 63, 69, and and 2010. So 63 and 2010, they have some resemblance in the sense of parliament, you know, having bicameral parliament and the presidency being relatively weak, right? So the 69 one is one which really entrenched the presidency, made it powerful, you know, abolished. Actually, before even 69, all these things had been abolished. The bicameral parliament had been abolished around 64. And little by little, you know, there was a lot of um, 
backsliding in terms of constitutional backsliding between 1963 and 1969. A lot of uh, laws are being passed by parliament to empower the presidency and disempower parliament, judiciary, and other key state institutions. So by 1969, the presidency had actually been elevated to a very powerful position. And from that time, from 1969 to 2010, we can see a lot of damage being done in Kenya because of this powerful presidency, either because of uh, entrenchment of corruption in the state, you know, elevation of tribalism, you know, the politics, which is very toxic, divide and rule, certain ethnic groups are being marginalized. So we had that consistently, you know, happening in Kenya between 1969, Jomo Kenyatta passes on in 1978, Moi takes over, and then Moi comes in and also, in a way, he actually makes everything bad because then people realize actually, we have a problem here of a constitution that has made the country ungovernable and livable, and basically the, the, the whole economic system was collapsing. So from 1980, there's a, a strong push towards constitutional change in Kenya and democratization. Because in 1982, Kenya had a, a coup, an attempted coup, which was crushed by the then president Daniel Moi. And after the coup there, the, uh, the idea of political competition was completely abolished in Kenya, right? So we had a, 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 a um, what do you call it? A, 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 one, a single party state was actually, you know, enacted in the constitution and it became constitutional that Kenya is a single party state, right, from 1982. So that point also opened up this valve for uh, political actors competing or pushing for reforms in the state. So little by little, there was that push. 1992, Kenya has the first multi-party election. So it was a very systematic and slow process. So 1992, we have the first multi-party elections in Kenya, which the incumbent Daniel Moi won. Again, in 1997, Daniel Moi won for the second uh, and final term in office. So by 92, when the state was going back into multipartisan, it was the constitutional change, a minor constitutional change happened and enabled by parliament to allow for multi-party competition. And it was put in the constitution that the president will only go for two terms, right? Five or five years each. So Moi went for his first term between 92 to 97, and then 97 to 202, then he was forced, he had to leave the office. So at that point, the pressure for constitutional change was massive, and Moi was being pushed to the wall like something had to be done, right? So before Moi left office in 202, he initiated a process of a constitutional change. So he formed a committee of experts, the called committee of experts, who went around the country collecting views among Kenyans on what they wanted on the constitution. So Kenyans get a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, views on the constitution. They wanted a uh, devolution, they wanted governors, they wanted a Senate, they wanted all these things. So all these views were collected by this committee of experts. And when, you're going, when we were going for the 202 elections, December 202, the, the, the then major political player, Mwai Kibaki, who won the election, promised that if elected, he will deliver a constitution in within you know, three months because he argued that we already have all these views collected by these experts. So our role will just be to collect these views, polish them, and then pass them in, uh, into a new constitution. So Kibaki won power in 2002, December, uh, December 2002. But after becoming the president, he actually renegated on his promise to, you know, to, to give Kenyans a new constitution. And that also formed another you know, point of consistation within the state, within the state itself, not, with, not within the government itself, right? So Kibaki was elected on a coalition of different parties or different individuals, key individuals, including Raila Odinga, um, Salim Davadi, all these people came together to support his candidature. And when he won, he promised that certain reforms in the state, including the constitution. But when he decided to abandon those reformist ideas, then it brought, it brought problems within the state because uh, his his own government, the opposition became uh, came out within the own his own government, not outside, not within, including Raila Odinga. Anyway, so there was a lot of agitation and push within the government for a new constitution. And yes, Kibaki decided to deliver a new constitution, and we had a referendum in two thousand and when was it? Uh, before twenty ten, we had a referendum in two thousand and I think it was two thousand and five. Yes, two thousand and five. We had a referendum on a new constitution. But the constitution had been watered down so, so much, and to an extent that the presidency was becoming even more powerful 
than the status quo constitution, right? So Kenyans went to a referendum and there was the yes side supporting the new constitution and the no side, but the no side won and Kibaki was defeated. In other words, there was this redemption, moment of redemption in Kenya where eventually Kenyans realized that what we're being given is the false constitution, not what we had you know, fought for. So that fallout from the 205 referendum when Kibaki was the president lost, lost the, the referendum, it directly fed 2007 violence, right? Because after Kibaki lost, he sacked all these ministers who had opposed him, and these ministers formed a coalition and a, 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 who then competed against Kibaki in 2007 with Raila Odinga being the presidential candidate. So 205, the violence in 2007, the 205 constitution referendum was a precursor to the 207 violence, you know, because some of the key issues Kibaki had promised to deliver, he failed to deliver on them. And so the 207 election was being fought on the same, same questions that were being fought in 202, reforming the state, new constitution, a less tribal, less corrupt state that Kibaki had promised and failed to deliver. So Dinga's platform was on delivering those things that Kibaki had promised and failed to deliver. And the election took place, and obviously, as we know, you know a lot of fraud, you know, and then we end up with this massive violence in 207 that nearly destroyed the Kenyan state. That point has been one of the key areas that Kenyans sort of, you know, if the elites in the Kenyan state were forced to consider their stand on not reforming the state and delivering a new constitution. So 207 was a moment of reflection and more or less like a, moment, a point where Kenyans realized that they had to do something about the state and the governance systems, otherwise they'll lose the country completely. So after the violence, Kibaki, who was, who was declared the winner, and Raila Odinga, who was the loser, they formed a coalition government with, with Odinga becoming the prime minister of the, of the, in the nation. So that point, these two forces, one opposing reforms, one pro-reforms who are forced to be in the same government. And so they had to configure a way, part of the reconciliation and the post-violence uh, uh, post uh, uh, reconciliation agenda debates was that Kenya need to change its constitution to accommodate all these demands from the citizens and from the elites. So then we had the 2010 referendum for a new constitution. And because most of the elites in Kenya were supporting this new constitution, it passed, right? So that's the moment where we have this new constitution that you've, you've, been, you've just uh, uh, talked about, the 2010 constitution, which currently is what Kenya is being governed under. So this new constitution was a pretty much celebrated, not just locally, but globally, because it ushered in new institutions, including the Supreme Court, uh, it brought about uh, devolution of resources and governance system in Kenya. It brought about affirmative action by bringing more women into position of power. I thought that the third gender rule, you know. So yeah, it brought some independent institutions in Kenya like the Independent Electoral Boundary Commission. The appointment of judges was pretty much open up you know, to the public scrutiny. You know, the security state, uh, uh, institutions are also being changed. So there are a lot of really good institutional reforms which the constitution delivered. The problem that we had after the new constitution was then immediately in 2013, we had elections. And the actualization of this constitution was being based on this 2013 election. So who was going to win the power and therefore deliver or actualize this constitution? Right, so unfortunately we went to election 2013 under the shadow of 2007 violence. Mr. Kenyatta and Mr. Ruto had been accused in organizing this violence in 2007, and they had been referred, the cases had been referred to the ICC at The Hague, the International Criminal Court at The Hague. And so they came, their campaign in 2013 was based on, you know, the ICC being a colonial project to undermine Kenya's democracy and independence. And unfortunately they won the election. So two guys who had, you know, this baggage of ICC, you know, on them actually won the presidential election. And they had the responsibility of actualizing this constitution. You know, unfortunately, they did some good stuff somewhere and also a lot of bad stuff happened along the way. One of the key things, major, major, major uh, backsliding which occurred was uh, the constitution had stipulated that the appointment of the police commissioner was absolutely separated from the presidency. The president had no role in appointing the police commissioner, you know, and that was an important uh, uh, sort of a plus in the constitution, in the sense that the police in Kenya has always been used by the politicians to harass the opponents. 
So if the commissioner is an independent, is independently appointed and the president could not sack the commissioner, then it means the police was some extent going to be independent from the presidency. One of the major, one of the first things Kenyatta's regime did was actually they changed the law so that the appointment of the, of the police commissioner was again restored back to the presidency. And so that, among other issues by watering down judicial independence, has been some of the setbacks what we've seen under Mr. Kenyatta's regime. But yet still the constitution has been, in some ways, you know, we've seen a lot of positives, right? One of them has been the enactment of the Supreme Court, which in a way has stopped the political violence we see in Kenya, because there's an institutional redress for those who feel they've been cheated in elections, right? So what we saw in 2007, it's pretty hard for us to us to go back there because now we have an independent Supreme Court, which is the sort of the last institutional resort, um, redress mechanism for any person who feels that they've been cheated in an election, like what you're seeing right now in Kenya. So this has been, a, it's a good constitution. Politicians have tried to undermine it in many ways, but institutions tend to also to fight back. I mean, we've seen that the judiciary has been very key in fighting back some of those manipulation controls and, and some of the bad things that have happened in Kenya. So yeah, I think it's, it's, it's something worth celebrating that in a way, it's Kenya is it what, what, what we know we see today because of that constitution we, we enacted in 2010. I think I've really talked a lot here, sorry. No, 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 this, is, this has been amazing. You, you just gave us a master class in constitutional history of Kenya. And that's, it's fascinating because I'm, I'm just now, I mean, I had, I had read about the violence in 2007 and it's oftentimes reduced to ethnic violence. And I think the, the, whole, the whole history of the fight around the, the main document governing the polity, i.e. Yeah. the constitution, gets put in the background. And it's yeah, definitely, exactly. I mean, you've, you've made, no, thank you. You've, this, has been, this has been really wonderful. Um, and I would ask you, so currently it's the 2010 constitution and, and your characterization is that it's, it's, it's fulfilled it's been partially fulfilled, right? But Kenyatta has, in a way, watered down certain aspects of it. But things like judiciary, judicial independence and the activation of the Supreme Court are definitely now um, part of the political landscape in, in, Ken, in Kenya in a way that they weren't before. Um, we have Raila Odinga, who's been part of a kind of reformist yeah. movement, a reformist politician throughout history as well, right? Yeah. And um, this and, and 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 what has definitely been enacted in the constitution are the electoral rules, right? Which are which are which which kind of govern the way in which um, elections lead to power, yeah. and that is basically a majoritarian system with a with a two round vote for pre the presidency. Could you could you walk us through kind of the that 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 sort of electoral setup in in Kenya? Yeah, thanks so much. So yeah, um, from the 2010 constitution, so we, before that, we had a simple majority. You, we, you, there was no 50 plus 1%, you know, whoever we, we had a simple majority vote was elected the president. And that tend to brought, that, that was the, the argument was that the simple majority was the key root of the political problems in Kenya, because the constitution was who actually won what, right? So there was some bit of manipulation to ensure that you, you won the simple majority votes and then you are through. So part of the innovation in 2010 was to bring the 50 plus 1% for, for one to win the presidency. So we, so we had an electoral system where we, 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 the design was that you know, we could have this number of political competitors competing the first round of votes as it happened in Latin America, most Latin American countries. And then if nobody gets 50 plus 1% in the first round, then we have a second round of votes, of voting of or elections. And, and the second round of, of, of voting, it was just a simple majority, whoever gets the most vote wins. But in the first round, if the, the winner had to be declared by, the winner had to be determined by having 50 plus 1% of votes and at least 24, at least 25% of votes in 24 counties, because Kenya now has a devolved system of government. And so now the idea was that, and I think the, 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 the ambition behind this was to try to water down the ethnic type of politics in Kenya by forcing all these political competitors to compete for votes in different counties with different ethnic groups. You know, So just don't, don't just target your own ethnic groups, but go beyond that and try to campaign in other regions 
and get the votes out, right? So that was the, the, the ambition behind the 25% of votes in 24 counties in Kenya. So that has been re real progress in Kenyan democracy by trying to open up political competition. And right now, if you look at campaigns in 2013, in 2017, and even this year, the key political players have really targeted nearly all the counties. They've traveled all over the place trying to bring out the votes, to sell their policies, and to mobilize the voters beyond just the confines of their ethnic groups. So that has been one of the major innovations of the constitution, opening up political competition, trying to water down ethnicity, though it hasn't succeeded that much, but at least to some extent it has at least made the politicians to be more serious, to go beyond the ethnic borders, you know, to win votes. And the major, major one has been the Supreme Court, right? As you clearly said, as I said previously, you know, it's pretty hard for Kenya to backslide and go back to violence because the Supreme Court has been more like a pressure valve in the political system where you open it up and use this political pressure. Because we have that redress mechanism, politicians and the citizens tend to hold back, you know, because people believe the Supreme Court will tend to give some, some uh, um, a fair judgment on the cases like we saw in 2017 where the Mr. Kenyatta's uh, election was nullified. So the level of confidence in the Supreme Court is pretty high. And in a sense, that has really held back all these uh, type of violence we saw in 2007. In 2007, we did, not, we did not have a Supreme Court. Judiciary was highly compromised, but right now we have relatively free, fair judiciary that is independent and Kenyan citizens have faith in it. So in a sense, that has tend to stabilize Kenyan politics, where at least people believe that if you have a problem, or some grievances with the electoral results, then you have a redress mechanism in terms of in, in, in the form of uh, Supreme Court. So I would argue that the Supreme Court has been one of the key uh, dividend, institutional dividends Kenya has really been able to, to get out of the 2020, 2010 constitution reforms. That's fascinating. Um, and, and, and so there's a, there's a two round uh, there's a runoff system for the presidency yeah. mixed with a majoritarian legislature. And as you said, I think the, the comparison with Latin America is, is, is interesting. In Latin America, you, you also get the runoff system in most countries, and but, but PR in the legislature. Yeah. And, and we, in the podcast, we kind of, we're always trying to look at the links between the electoral system and the party system. And obviously these links aren't always, um, they're not always ironclad. But generally, uh, with a runoff system, one would expect there to be a multi-party system. Um, what, what, what sort of party system do we get in Kenya? Who are the major parties? Um, and are there like major cleavages? Are they institutionalized? Are elites entrenched? Or do yeah. you see like circulation of elites um, okay. in this in the party system? Yeah, yeah. I think one of the major weaknesses of Kenyan democracy is the lack of robust political party system, right? Like, while Kenya tends to hold elections after every five years, it is interesting because we tend to get new political parties after every five years. So every new election brings new or yields new political parties, you know. The only party which has been pretty much stable in the last four elections is Mr. Odinga's Orange Democratic Movement or ODM. You know, the rest are fairly new. Right, including UDA, United Democratic Alliance, which Mr. Ruto used, uh, used in this election. Right, So the rate of party attrition in Kenya is pretty high because parties tend to be owned by individuals. Right, And a good example is um, the outgoing president, Mr. Kenyatta. So he, when he was elected in 2013, he came under a party called TNA, the National Alliance. In 2017 election, he ran the 2017 election under the party called Jubilee Party. So TNA more or less just disappeared in the political landscape in a five-year period between 2013 to 2017. So in this election, Jubilee, which is uh, uh, linked to Mr. Kenyatta, was still around, but his performance has been very poor, especially in his former strongholds in central Kenya. And I can, uh, I can bet that in the next election in 2027, Jubilee will absolutely disappear in the Kenyan political landscape because Mr. Kenyatta will have gone home and retired. So in other words, Kenya lacks a robust political party system. And it's pretty hard for me to list any major political party, probably ODM, which has been there for the last, the last four elections. The rest are pretty new. They tend to collapse. Our leader, the, the political leaders tend to, you know, create new political parties in every single elections. And in many ways, if you look at 
the Kenyan political landscape, there are so many political parties that have been registered by individuals. And the term that has been used in Kenya to describe these parties is briefcase parties, in the sense that they don't hold, they don't have any office. Some of them have no elected leader. So basically any person can register a political party in Kenya. And they tend to be very, very much lucrative. It's a very lucrative business during elections because then you can sell the party to, some, to any person who's interested. So myself, like Fred, I could register a political party today, sit back and wait for the next election. When a political leader has been pushed out of this party, he or she is looking for a, a new political party to run on, then I sell him my political party. So it's a way that people are found to make money out of it by registering parties, sitting back and waiting, and then selling them to the highest bidder in the next election. So basically, we don't have major political parties, and that's one of the major, major weaknesses in Kenya. Um, in terms of the major cleavages in Kenya electoral system, ethnicity is the major cleavage in Kenya electoral system, and that's not just unique in Kenya. It's an African problem, you know, and the argument is that African elections, including Kenya, tend to be an ethnic census where people vote according to their ethnicity. So basically, you can count how many Kikuyus are in Kenya by looking at the number of Kikuyus voting for, 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 for Ruto, or the, how many Kalenjis are there based on the numbers who voted for Ruto, how many Luos are there in Kenya based on the numbers who voted for Dinga, how many Kambas are there in Kenya based on the numbers who voted for, 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 for Kalonzo. So unlike other countries in the Western world where cleavages tend to be either on age, uh, cultural issues, social issues, America has a lot of issues on social issues like uh, abortion, etc. In Kenya, we yet to mature enough to reach that level where we can actually claim other cleavages. For now, mobilization of, of voting takes, uh, takes place around um, uh, ethnicity. Although I may argue that we may see some sub-cleavages, not major, but sub-cleavages being revealed in this election based on Mr. Ruto's campaign, economic campaign on economic issues. We still don't have, don't have the data, but I will say that based on the opinion polls, pre-election of opinion polls, it showed that Ruto had a major support among the young and the poor, right? Because of his economic message, he's going to create jobs, he's going to reform the economy, he's, he's going to make the economy be more fair to everybody and inclusive. Uh, Mr. Dinga's uh, major backers or voting uh, group were, has been said to be the mid and old people. The, 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 these people who are the middle class or mid age from 40 years and above, they did not trust Ruto that much. So they thought they were safer with Mr. Dinga. So in a way, uh, the economic agenda and those dynamics of, economy, of the economy may be distorting the ethnicity in Kenya to some extent, not fully, some extent. And we are, I think it's fair enough for me to say it's, we have to wait and see some of the patterns coming out of this election. But ethnicity has still been very, very key, even in this election. Okay, great. Um, so maybe we could move on to the, uh, the kind of candidates in this uh, particular election now. Um, obviously, um, Odinga, as we've mentioned, has been running for the presidency for quite a long time, um, has appeared in a number of elections, um, and yeah. although never successfully. Um, could you just sort of tell us a little bit about um, about Odinga, what his kind of background is, and, and does he have a particular kind of, is he associated with a particular kind of ideology? Or is there any kind of like particular issues that, that he would be associated with um, in the minds of Kenyans? Yeah, yeah, thanks. Thank you very much. Mr. Odinga is an all-timer in Kenyan politics, indeed, and he's been there in uh, nearly all of the, uh, in the last six or there about presidential election, because he first ran in 1997, uh, in 2002, he backed Kibaki. He was in the ballot in 2007, in 2013, in 2017, and also this election. So basically, this was his fifth uh, attempt of at the presidency. So in a way, again, I may say earlier on, I should say that his candidacy has, in a sense, you know, created a fatigue among his supporters. Most of them felt that he's been there for long. And that might also explain some of the issues coming out, like low voter turnout in this election. Even among Mr. Odinga's co-supporters, you know, the Luos, I think what I've seen the statistics coming out is that 75% of voter turnout was around 75%, which is pretty low. And there's a sense of fatigue among his supporters. He has been a very powerful force in Kenyan politics for a very, very long time. 
since 92 onward has been there competing in, in uh, for for uh, uh, for some of the political offices in Kenya and one of the amazing thing about himself is that he has always been very able to reinvent himself in every election electoral cycle so like in 2017 election after the uh, contested election most Kenyans had expected Mr Odinga to disappear from the political scene but then we had this handshake with Mr Kenyatta and then he used that to leverage uh, on his uh, 2022 uh, political campaign so he's been very much good in reinventing himself and repackaging himself with some new um, uh, message or campaign agenda to mobilize his supporters but again one of the positive things about Mr Odinga is that he's been one of the key faces of political reforms in Kenya so he has been one of the champions of uh, the 2010 constitutional reforms and also anti corruption messages in Kenya so he's been very key fighting for the for reforms either with constitution institutions and also anti corruption in fact some of the agenda that Mr Ruto has been pushing with this campaign about economic reforms Mr Dinga was among the first politicians to really talk about economic equity and fairness in Kenya his two or seven campaigns which he nearly won probably won I have no idea was actually based on economic reforms equity and fairness in the country so in a way you can actually talk about Mr Ruto actually grabbing some of those Mr Dinga's uh, ideas in this election so Mr Dinga's uh, running mate in the election was Mata Karua who also has a reformist uh, background Mata Karua has been also been uh, she was part of the so called young tax in 1992 those who confronted Moi and forced Moi to to introduce a multi party elections in Kenya so she has a very long history of fighting for reforms justice equity anti corruption in Kenya although when she joined Mr Kibaki's government in, in 2002 uh, she was sort of co-opted into the corruption networks so in a way some of her credentials were watered down but still she she still compared to other Kenyan election politicians she has some credibility so Mr Dinga's campaign was actually anchored on on reforms Mr Ruto on the other hand had different message and also his background really made it very hard for him to talk about reforms because he's been implicated in, in corruption and also he has a, the baggage of political violence it was a political violence so in a way he had to uh, uh, to pivot his campaign from reforms to economic messages because in a way he found this space or vacuum that was existing where he could package his campaign and focus on economic messages and two because of the baggage he had it was pretty hard for him to really talk about reforms and you know reforming the state fighting corruption instituting institutionalizing good governance etc etc so in a way because of his baggage it became very hard for him to really talk about these key issues in the Kenyan state so looking at this campaign i think it's very clear we had two opposing sides one reformist led by Mr Dinga and the running mate uh, Matakarua and one the other side uh, economic agenda being propagated by Mr Ruto and the running mate uh, Gashagwa Mr Ruto's running mate is also very interesting because they said they share the same characteristic they all have this baggage behind them Mr Gashagwa has been a, in fact he has an ongoing case in the court Kenyan court on corruption cases you know and and just before the election the high court in Kenya ordered him to return a substantial amount of money to the state Kenyan state because of corruption so in a sense the two of them were sort of representing one of the key problems in Kenya which is corruption Mr Dingo on the other side was sort of being thought of as being a reformist and was sort of had this potential to reform the Kenyan state so it's unfortunate that one side has won i'm not sure how much Kenya trust or even have you know hope on, on Mr Ruto reforming the state i think we'll have to wait and see how he goes about doing that so as somebody who who very has occasionally um sort of checked in with Kenya in the past one thing i knew was about the kind of uh Kenyatta Odinga rivalry that yeah. they had fought elections together whereas in this election they seem to have made peace to a certain extent whereas Ruto who was Kenyatta's vice president has um obviously split from him um do you could you just tell us a little bit about what's gone on here in the past sort of few years since the last election um how have these kind of alliances shifted about yeah yeah thanks so so the 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 we we really cannot really pinpoint the exact reason why Mr Odinga and Mr Kenyatta really had to come together to work together but some of the arguments being put forward one of them is that Mr Kenyatta and Mr Ruto's um uh, coalition or was more or less a marriage of convenience 
the two of them had this ICC case hanging on their neck. And so they had to find a way to work together in order to overcome this ICC problem. So one of them was to form a coalition and compete and win the election, and then sort this ICC problem, which they did successfully. They won the 2013 election, and then they went about fighting the ICC case and ensuring that all the witnesses were actually intimidated. So the ICC cases disappeared. So when the ICC cases disappeared, it was clear that Mr. Kenyatta and Mr. Ruto will eventually fall out. But they had to tolerate each other, compete in the 2017 election, which they won. And from that point onwards, you know, Mr. Kenyatta decided to get rid of Mr. Ruto. Now, there are different speculations. One of them is that Kenyatta invited Odinga to help him deal with Ruto, Ruto as a political problem. So the story goes that Ruto had held Kenyatta hostage. And so Mr. Kenyatta needed a political colossus in the form of Mr. Odinga to help him contain and manage Mr. Ruto. So we are not, we are not sure if that, is, if that is true. There are also other speculations that Kenyatta had been keen on gaining political legit legitimacy after the 2017 election, contested election, you know, which, the, which the leader no card, but Mr. Odinga did not participate in. So he reached out to Mr. Odinga for that reason to gain political leg legitimacy after the contested election. Others have also said that the economic boycott initiated by Mr. Odinga after the electoral, fall, electoral fallout in 2017 was actually hitting Mr. Kenyatta's family business very hard. And so he reached out to Mr. Mr. Odinga to contain the economic damage that was being done to the family businesses. It could be any of those reasons or all of them together or some other reasons we don't know. But I think ultimately Mr. Kenyatta needed Mr. Odinga to help him contain Mr. Ruto, who in one way or another had decided to start early campaigns. And so Mr. Kenyatta thought that he needed somebody else to work with to help him contain Mr. Ruto politically. So it could be, we don't know the exact reason why the, the failout occurred, but it could be any of those reasons or even others that have not been mentioned. Well, that's, um, that's, that's sort of cleared up a bit of a, a mystery for me, I guess, um, as well, as to why that kind of switch around has, has happened. Um, so another thing that I think is sort of more commonly known about Kenya is that there is, um, uh, what was something we hear about Kenya is a kind of increasing sort of Chinese influence in the country in terms of like kind of economic um, investments, etc. Does this have any kind of electoral impact at all? Does this play any kind of role or is sort of um, this kind of uh, something which doesn't really sort of matter um, in terms of party politics at all? Yeah, I mean, the Chinese have a massive influence on Kenya. They've really uh, funded a lot of infrastructural projects in Kenya, including the railway from Mombasa to Nairobi, and recently the, the Nairobi Expressway from the airport, Nairobi Airport, to, to, to the other side of Nairobi. So they have really done a lot of investment in Kenya. But apparently, the Chinese are very clever, and they do not meddle in Kenyan politics. I think they tend to maintain this neutral stance. They neither support Mr. Kenyatta, Mr. Ruto, or Mr. Odinga. If they do, then I think they do it very subtly in the background, but not explicitly. And so, in a way, I think they're very clever. They tend to remain neutral because they want to continue, you know, engaging with whoever wins the presidency. So, in a sense, I, th I don't think we've seen Chinese uh, direct financing or even propagating or supporting a specific candidate in these elections. And I think they have their own reason for doing that. But I will speculate the main reason is for them, they want to remain neutral so that they can actually continue working with whichever government wins power. Great. I would, I would maybe ask you now, given that you've already talked about so many different issues that we, we had all these questions about Kenya and you've answered all of them wonderfully. Um, just about some of the kind of the, 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 I think the issue that made the headlines the most around the Kenyan election, which is why did the vote count take so long? Is this typical in Kenya or was there some sort of um, particular issue this time around that made the, the count last for nearly a week? Yeah, yeah, it, 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 it could, it's a puzzle. Myself, I'm also puzzled and I was asking me, trying to ask some of my colleagues like, what's going on here, you know. But if you look, if you go back from 2013 onwards, it's, it's been very systematic that the counting period has been more or less getting longer and longer and longer. I really can't remember exactly how many days it took in 2013, but compared to 2007 or 2002, if we go back to 2002, when Mike Kibaki was elected, it actually took 24 hours to count the, result, the, the, the votes and announce the winner. In 2007, we also had a more or less quick way of counting and announcing the votes because I remember we voted 
Uh, and the following morning, we clearly knew who was winning the, the, the votes before everything was manipulated. And then from 2013, then we have this sort of period where the counting and announcing of results takes more days. 2013, I think it took around two or three days. 2017, it took longer. And now this election has broken the record by taking around seven days. I would say that it's not a unique thing. And part of the reason why it has, it's taking longer to count votes is because of the introduction of electro electronic voting and transmission system. If you go back to 202 and 207, we had a manual system of voting and results transmission. From 2013, then the Electoral Commission introduces a new system of voting, which is electronic. So you have to go there, you know, use the fingerprints for identification, and then you vote, and then the results have to be captured at the local level and then transmitted nationally, and then they're using all this electronic transmission system. So that takes longer to validate. The vote has to be validated. Every single process has to be validated. And in a way that has extended the number of days uh, or the votes are being counted and announced. Again, also this requirement after the 207 electoral debacle and the violence that there's this form called Form 34C. Actually, there are so many forms. There's 34A, B, and C. To be honest, I don't know which is which. I just know there's 34C, which is the most important one. And it has to be physically transmitted or brought to Nairobi from all over the country. So that you know ensures somebody was fast to Rukana, Moyale, they all have to come to Nairobi, the returning officers have to come to Nairobi to bring these forms for them to be validated, tabulation to take place. You know, so this problem, the sheer bureaucracy, which emerged after the 207 violence in the electoral system in Kenya, has actually brought this problem of vote counting, validation, and announcement. You know, and then to compound to this thing, apart from the constitution putting all these processes, the Supreme Court rulings, in, like in 2017, the Supreme Court rulings about, you know, the announced the, the tabulation has to occur, you know, like the servers, the, the server, the IBC servers has to be open and everybody must have access to all this information. So those are also added layers of bureaucracy to the system and extended the day and, and added more delays in the announcement of the results. Apart from us, that also results some incompetency with the IBC in terms of, you know, you know, so they're pretty much slow in collecting, uh, uh, what do you call it? Counting the votes, validating the votes and announcing. And the last point I should add also because also the additional, the additional seats, you know, in 202, in 207, we only had the presidency and MPs and the local councillors. Now we have so many seats being competed for, governor, MCA, MCA, MPs, senator, women representative, you know, all these things have to be counted, validated, tabulated, and then announced. You know, so that has also added the number of the problem of actually you know, counting votes and announcing the results very quickly. Yeah, oh, that's, that's, that's a really, that, that's, a, that's a very detailed answer, thank you. Um, yeah, I was wondering why that was taking so long. It, it's so, um, it's dangerous, I think, for systems to have, I mean, I, I get there's a trade-off, right, between the security of the voting and then the how quickly results can come out. Um, and uh, obviously, I, I understand that after 2007, there would, there would be an impetus for more kind of secure voting. Yeah. But I don't know if the I don't know if the there should maybe be a reckoning around um, if there's any way of making it secure and a bit faster because a week yeah. allows yeah. for political actors to kind of claim victory or yeah. Yeah. you know yeah. create a sort of spin a narrative etc. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and then another thing that's now that's now emerging is that uh, I think it was yesterday or the day before yesterday four out of seven of the electoral commissioners of the Independent Electoral and Boundaries Commission rejected the results. They went on the media and said, we cannot take the ownership of the results that are being announced because of the opaque nature with which the results have been handled. Why do you think, why would this, the, why would the people who, well, four out of seven of the commissioners reject the, the way that it was counted? And what implications do you think this might have um, for Kenyan politics? Yeah, um, yeah, so even before I, I do answer the question, I think, um, so Mr. Dinga is expected to go to the Supreme Court to challenge these elections. And one of the key outcomes, the Supreme Court will make a ruling, which will also affect the next election. So in a very powerful way, the Kenyan Supreme Court has been 
you know, sort of trying to, you know, increase the fairness of, of elections outside the 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 the, 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 the codified laws, you know, that the, the, the constitution, right? From 2013 to 2017, when Mr. the Supreme Court, they tend to come up with rulings, which in a way also sort of strengthens the electoral system. And in a way also adds to the delay of counting votes. And because I'm sure they're gonna come up with a ruling to authorize the IBC to change its behavior or do things differently, which the commission, if responsible for the next election will have to take into account as they run the election. And that might also add more delays in the counting validation announcement. Anyway, apart from that, it, it was quite strange seeing, uh, if I got the question, seeing these four commissioners, you know, sort of disowning the results, everybody was shocked. And in, if, you, if you look at the composition of the IBC from 2017 election, after the 2017 election, the rerun, um, the, uh, election, four commissioners resigned from the from the commission, right? So we had a vacancy, and so we had a commission with only three commissioners, and the four resigned. So this new these four commissioners who rejected the results, they were appointed last year by Mr. Kenyatta. So there's some rumors going around that they were bidding for Mr. Odinga because Mr. Odinga and Mr. Kenyatta might have agreed on whom to appoint last year. And so we are not sure if indeed the claims for fraud is true. We have no idea. It could be that they already have been being influenced by Mr. Odinga and Mr. Kenyatta to behave the way we saw them behave, rejecting the results. So in a way that has that is the foundation for Mr. Odinga to contest these results. And that goes back to a court of appeal ruling in Kenya in 2019. And the court was very specific because a civil society organization went to the court to ask the court to interpret the, the law if indeed the IABC constituted with three commissioner is allowed constitutionally to run elections. And the judge of this, in the court of appeal ruled that IABC must be fully constituted with seven commissioners, with a full quorum must be there, and they must all have a consensus on the decision they make. So, that is a very valid claim for Mr. Odinga to go to the Supreme Court and argue out that the way the results were being announced, there's no consensus in the IBC because the court had already ruled that there must be a consensus. So he has some legitimate reasons to go to the court. Is that going to really uh, affect how people perceive IBC? I think Kenyans are so, sort of used to this drama. So it's not really a big surprise in the sense that we know that these are political appointments. And because of political appointment, they tend to act the bidding of those who appointed them, right? So whatever happened in, on Monday was in a way, a little bit surprising, but not totally surprising given the Kenyan political history. I see, okay, that, that, that's fascinating. It sounds a lot like Latin America as well, <laughs> um, <laughs> where, where similar, you know, um, voters are used to this kind of, you know, raw politics um, exactly. happening at the institutional level, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, what will happen? I mean, if the court does rule that Mr. Odinga is right, there has to be a new election in in thirty days or or in six no sixty days, I think. Um, do do you think that that's a could that be destabilizing or do you think maybe there's there's not much of a chance of that happening? Yeah, I mean, we the Supreme Court might order a recount of the votes. Mm -hmm. No, it might, I'm not sure, probably somebody was saying that it might order the IBC to be disbanded and constituted afresh for a new election. So we have no idea what they do. Or they might order an audit of the electronic voting machines, you know, the one which for people use for voting and transmission. So there, I think I saw this lawyer writing something and he said there are three, you know, sort of um, uh, Supreme Court decisions with the, the three a decision the Supreme Court may make, either a recount of the votes, a re-election, um, disbanding of the of the IBC and the constitution. And the, so the fourth one is an audit of the, of the electronic voting system. Um, we have no idea what the court will actually rule. I think that depends on the evidence that Mr. Dinger gives the court to show that there's fraud or probably technicality. Now, if it's a technicality issue, then they might order a recount of the vote. If it's a fraud issue, then they might order a new election. Kenyans are more or less 
sort of exhausted because I just came back from Kenya last Saturday and I was there myself and people are more or less exhausted with the politicking. And part of the reason why they're exhausted with the politicking because Mr. Ruto uh, began campaigning in 2017. So basically Kenya has been on campaign mode for the last five years. So a big chunk of people are just exhausted with the, the politics. And the second thing is the cost of living crisis is really impacting on people in a massive way. And they just want a new government to help them to solve this problem, you know? And the third thing is post-COVID educational problems where schools were closed for over one year in Kenya and now the school can be squeezed and, you know, parents just want their kids to go back to school and, you know, sort of, you know, get on going with it. And because of that, so their parents, most parents just want, you know, people to move on, kids to go back to school because during Kenyan elections, schools have to be closed, kids have to go back home because the schools are the voting stations. And so oh. those dynamics are bringing all these, you know, people are just at this point where they're wondering, should we have another election or should we move on? But again, it depends who we ask. I think if you ask Ruto supporters, they'll say, let's move on. If you ask Mr. Odinga supporters, they'll say, no, 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 we need, a re- we need a rerun. So yeah, it's quite complicated. Yeah, 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 yeah. I... That's very tiring. I mean, five years of campaigning. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, there's always a sense with uh, kind of, I, I, I see this in Latin America as well. When, when, when the election gets messy, you know, obviously people are exasperated. They just want the government to, to, to fulfill its, its duties, right? Just kind of exactly. provide services and, and public, yeah, public services and order. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask you one last question. Before we, I mean, I don't know if Johnny would have other questions, but I'm going to just ask you one question, which it might be, it's a big question, but if, if, if ethnicity is so important for Kenyan elections, how does a candidate expand their coalition? Or is, is, a, is a certain ethnic group that is smaller than the largest ethnic group yeah. condemned to be the second place con- perpetually? Yeah, uh, so in a way, you, you sort of alluded to the answer in the sense that Kenya, we can categorize Kenyan ethnic groups into two categories. We have the five big ones and then the rest. So the five big ones are the Kikuyu, the Luo, the Luya, the Kalenjin, and the Kambas. So they constitute around 60% of the Kenyan population in terms of demography, you know. And then we have the rest. Right, so politics has always revolved around these five big ethnic groups, the Kikuyu, the Kalenjin, the Luo, the Kamba, and the Luyas, right? So if, in a sense, we, we just did our survey, an experiment, a field experiment the last one month, and we're trying to measure if indeed people vote based on ethnicity or some level of strategic voting where people will target candidates with policies they think are very relevant to their you know, ongoing problems, you know, on if it's education, health issues. So people will target politicians actually mentioning those things in the campaigns and vote for those politicians. And in a sense, we targeted the five big ethnic groups. We did not do a national, cross-national, you know, something and all that, because we think that the level of ethnicity is actually is higher among these five groups than the rest, because they're politically active, you know, one of them is running for some big office at the presidency, mostly presidency. And because of that, the patronage networks, people have anticipated to, you know, to benefit from after the elections. So then these five big groups who are fronting a presidential candidate, they are the ethnic groups tend to vote for them. So the rest has to be courted by these five ethnic groups. So some level of courting, coalition building, you know, swaying, um, uh, enticement with positions, you know, like we saw Mr. Dinga, you know, already appointing his cabinet before even the elections. He had already nominated the Minister of Finance, he had already nominated the Minister for Lands, the Minister for Agriculture before the elections. And these are positions being dished out to entice the smaller groups to vote for them. And the same thing happened with Mr. Ruto. He already dished positions before he even won. And so that's how elections are run. The five big groups tend to compete among themselves and then they entice the smaller groups or bind them into coalition by promising certain positions in, in, in the government. So in a sense, we still don't know what's going on about ethnicity, from, we haven't seen our data, but I will speculate that the five big ethnic groups are more sort of ethnic in terms of their voting behavior than the smaller ones. And do we, 
do we see um, candidates trying to build like cross ethnic coalitions? Are there? Uh, sorry, no. I'm gonna ask the other the question the other way around. Are there ethnic groups that can never form coalitions, and others that are easier to kind of form coalitions around? Yeah. <laughs> To be honest, there's really no difficult, there's no really, there are ethnic groups that will never form coalition. And that's one of the annoying things about Kenyan politics. Ethnic groups which were previously hostile to each other, in the next election, they are forming coalitions. Ethnic groups which form coalition in this election, in the following election, they are hostile to each other. So we tend to have this macro political manipulation by these key ethnic leaders. And so there's a clash between ethnic groups at the same time. And at the same time that ethnic groups collaborate, right? So we've seen the Luos and the Kikuyus who have been politically hostile for a long time, collaborating in 202 to oust Moi. And then we've seen the Luos and the Kikuyus in a period of five years becoming hostile to each other in 207, you know, when Mr. Dinga was running against Mr. Kibaki. And then we've seen the Kalenjins and the Kikuyus who are absolutely hostile to each other in 207, and were fighting each other, forming a coalition in 2013 elections and 2017 elections, right? And then we've seen Kiki Kuyu leaders who were against Mr. Dinga in 2013 and 2017, backing his candidacy in 2022. So it's pretty much confusing. And even sometimes the citizens are confused but they are forced to vote for their leaders because of those ethnic attachment. You know, people feel like if my leader tells me to vote here, then they follow him. But sometimes they do it reluctantly. Like, surely these people are enemies. I think Kenyans are forgiving, politically forgiving, in a sense. They tend to forget quickly some of the evils done to them by the political leaders and the other ethnic group. And they cross the bridge and they vote for that ethnic group. So in short, there's no impossibility in coalition forming in Kenya. There's all possibilities that any person can form, any ethnic group can form a coalition with any, any other ethnic group at any given time. Fascinating. Thank you so much. Um, Fred, I, I, I'm out of questions. I feel like I've become much wiser uh, with regards to Kenyan politics thanks to, your, thanks, to, thanks to your participation. It was really an honor to hear um, such sophisticated and kind of profound knowledge of, of this country and this political system. Yeah. I don't know if Johnny has questions. No, no more. I mean, you've answered um, many questions I had and, and didn't know I had as well. Um, so yeah, it was really interesting. Thank you very much for, for coming along today. Yeah, thanks. I think the last question which I'm seeing here, sorry, is about why did William Ruto win? <laughs> oh, uh, uh, well, I don't know. Uh, uh, Obviously, I have no, no concrete reasons for this, but we could think of a couple, one of them being that he started his campaign pretty early, 2017. You know, so he had uh, uh, the first move advantage. Uh, the second thing which we must speculate on is he's actually leveraged on this economic crisis to build on his campaign agenda on economic liberation, liber liber liberation. So he'll be very successful in liber leveraging on this ongoing crisis on post-COVID and also, you know, the Russian war, you know, all this has put a squeeze on the population. And basically the third one, William Ruto really had more ambition. He wanted the presidency more than Mr. Dinga. You could see how he organized his campaign, the resources he deployed. You know, he was willing to go the extra mile just to win the presidency. I've always said this, like if you're running for an African, for the presidency in Africa, there are two conditions that hold for you to really qualify. The first one is you must really know how to rig the election to win the president, to rig. You know, so if you know how to rig, then you qualify to run. The second one is that if you know how to stop the rigging, you know, then run for the presidency. But if you, neither of those conditions are applicable, then don't run. And I think Mr. Dinga has never really learned those two principles. Either he must know how to rig the election to win or to stop the rigging. Because he's been consistently calling out the rigging, the rigging, the rigging, the rigging. And that really clearly shows his weakness in the sense that he's never really known how to rig the polls. Because for this election, it was pretty easy for him to win. The difference is very rather thin, very marginal. If he wanted to manipulate the votes to win, he would have done it. And indeed, if he thinks he's a clean candidate and he doesn't have the guts to rig, 
then he should have you know the tools to stop the rigging or the stealing or the manipulation or the fraud. And I don't think he has done that. So either I think William Bruto clearly understood that either he knew how to, to rig the election to win, we don't know, or he clearly knew how to stop the rigging and ensure that he crossed the threshold to win the presidency. So we still don't know. I think the Supreme Court will give us a better understanding of what happened because of the argument that will take place in the Supreme Court. Fascinating. I think the last thing is one of the good things about Mr. Dinga going to the Supreme Court, it tends to unravel the electoral process because the lawyers, the evidence is presented. In a way, it brings more transparency. And in a way, it also feeds to citizens having more confidence in the next election because they understand the mechanization that goes on. So they're well prepared to sort of anticipate all these problems. So I think people have criticized Mr. Dinga. A lot of people say he shouldn't go. Myself, I was like, he should concede. But I think it's important that he goes there for yeah. the next election, even if the Supreme Court will not nullify the election. But the ruling, the deliberation, the argument, the narratives coming out of that will actually strengthen Kenya's political system for the next election. That's really interesting. Um, it, it reminds me a little bit of Mexico, where there, there were a series of electoral reforms that made the electoral uh, process more transparent and more robust, precisely because they were contested constantly in the courts. Um, so this this reminds me of that sort of dynamic. Um, and it, yeah, that, that's a route for, that's a way for political systems to, to become stronger democracies, I think. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Fred, for for your for your time, for mm -hmm. your knowledge, for sharing your insights. Um, fascinating. And um, for everyone who's listening, um, please do follow uh, uh, Dr. Frederick Adwang's uh, research on Kenya. Um, I know that he's already produced some wonderful things, and I'm sure that there's a lot more um, fascinating research to come. Yeah, thank you very, very, very much. Really appreciate it to share and talk to you about this election and the sort of some of the insights. I think I've also gotten some bit of information on your end, especially based on, on Latin American politics. So I'm very, very grateful for this opportunity. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Um, okay. All right. Uh, shall we wrap it up there then? Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, yes. Uh, as normal, please do remember to rate and subscribe wherever you're listening. Um, helps us uh, grow the podcast um, as well. Um, and we'll see you next time.